Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras. Hello, uh, folks. Uh, welcome to Season 4 of uh, Wisdom of Friends. I'm your host, Cal Ross, And today, I'm really excited to be introducing you to a dear friend of mine. His name is Dr. Ali Benazir. And Dr. Ali is an author, speaker, and a clinical hypnotherapist and a happiness engineer. He's the author of four books, including The Tao of Dating, The Smart Woman's Guide to Being Absolutely Irresistible, the highest rated dating book on Amazon for four years in a row, and most recently, Should I Go to Medical School, An Irreverent Guide to Pro and Cons of a Career in Medicine. Dr. Ali holds an honors degree from Harvard College, an MD from UC San Diego School of Medicine, and an MPhil from Cambridge University. He, for, he was formerly a consultant at McKinsey & Company, and he writes a popular column for Huffington Post and is based in San Francisco. He trains executive speakers with KNP Communications and has given three TEDx talks by invitation, Awaken, The Inner Creative Genius, Love and the Empowered Woman, and happiness engineering, a new paradigm for success. Friends, this is a fascinating conversation where we talk about uh, being a compelling speaker. What does it take to be charismatic? We talk about uh, fulfillment-centered living, happiness engineering, and it's this episode is uh, packed with a lot of golden nuggets, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. So without further ado... Let's welcome the one and only Dr. Ali Benazir. So good evening, uh, Dr. Ali. Uh, welcome to the Wisdom of Friends show. I'm really excited that you took the time to uh, be on this program. And let me start off with my first impressions of you. It was almost like five years ago when I took a course that you were offering online. It was a metamorphosis course, which... Uh, which you had really effectively combined some of the techniques from uh, Eastern philosophy with modern science and how about living an abundant life. And and it was also centered around dating and relationships. And I thought that was one program that's been a really an impactful uh course for me in my life because it's really impacted how I interact in my relationships and my friendships and even personal and professional as well. So I want to thank you for that. And I really um, excited that you took the time to be on the show. So welcome to the show. Thank you for having me and thank you for the kind words. The best word I can get is to find out that some student benefited from what I'm teaching. That way I know it's actually useful. Excellent. And uh, so one way, Dr. Uh, Dr. Ali, we start off our show is by asking our guest a simple but yet profound question, which is, what is your favorite quote or philosophy that you live by and how have you applied it to your life? Hmm. It's a great question. Uh, well, I'm a big fan of Taoism and especially the Tao Te Ching. And it's a book that I've reread uh, many dozens of times, probably hundreds of times. 
And so just generally the whole mindset of Taoism is something that I've uh, often subscribed to. And uh, if I were to summarize the most salient point of Taoism, is that there is a way that the world unfolds. The The Tao is the way. And in the same way that wood has a grain to it and jade has certain markings to it, right? It's easy to cut along the grain of wood and along the markings of jade than it is to go against the grain. So seek that out in life. And if ever you are struggling, chances are you're trying to go against the grain. You're trying to swim upstream. So find that path of lower resistance because that's when nature and the world is going to be favoring what you're doing anyway. So instead of trying to swim upstream, why not swim downstream? That way the river is aiding you along. So uh, that's a philosophy that I've really liked from Taoism, but just generally appreciate uh, the whole Taoist mindset, including a bunch of other uh, concepts that come up over and over in the Tao Te Ching. No, that is so great, and I really like that because it reminds me of a quote by Rumi, which uh, he talks about, you know, what is uh, what you are seeking is seeking you, and uh, essentially the idea is get out of your own way and, you know, get in with the flow, and I think uh, that's, that's really a great point. So I'm, what I'm curious about, Dr. Ali, is uh, where did you grow up, and how would you describe your childhood? Yeah, I grew up in Tehran, uh, capital of Iran. And I was there till I was uh, 13 years old. And initially, you know, great childhood, um, great parents, very caring, very loving. And everything was idyllic until this thing happened called a revolution. And it's been, you know, the Iranian revolution has been called one of the three true modern revolutions, along with the French and the Russian one, because you had this, you know, monarchy before, and then suddenly everything gets upended and suddenly end up with the world's only theocracy. So that was a big shift. And then a year after that happened, there's a war and Saddam Hussein starts dropping bombs on Tehran and other cities. So uh, life changed a lot. So on the one hand, I started out being kind of a spoiled child and, you know, doted on by my parents and stuff and, you know, all the toys in the world, everything I ever wanted. And then we had to immigrate to the United States because if I'd stayed, I would have been drafted and that was real danger and also bombs being being dropped on us in Tehran. So, uh, and because of the sanctions on Iran and because Iran had become a pariah nation, basically we came with nothing. So we had to start from scratch and suddenly I'm not a spoiled kid anymore. Suddenly I have very little. And so that contrast between the two, I think has shaped me a lot because I've known both abundance and uh, a certain amount of lack. And, you know, then my dad joined us and eventually we ended up doing okay. Uh, but I think an experience like that makes you uh, not take anything for granted and realize that everything is provisional, everything that you have is a blessing, and also just be very adaptable. You know, at 13 years old, uh, kids are, are pretty bendy. So uh, I adapted and things turned out okay. You know, got into Harvard, got into medical school, life's all right. And uh, right now I'm speaking to you from Santa Monica, California, one of the nicest spots on earth. So uh, it all turned out okay. At the same time, I think that was very formative in that, um, you know, if you have a kid that's spoiled his whole life, that's just not a very good preparation for what the world's going to be giving you. So um, uh, in retrospect, ironically, that was good training. 
Absolutely. You know, it's a good point. And I think, uh, you know, me being an immigrant, too, it's, uh, you know, we bring a certain perspective to life. And, uh, you know, it, it brings out the diversity, the, you know, they also call it the immigrant's edge, uh, because, uh, you know, the hardships, the struggles, it really uh, toughens you up and makes you better prepared and makes you more grittier, if you will, to take on the challenges of life. Uh, and looking at your bio, Dr. Ali, I know that, uh, you went to Harvard College and then you got an MD from UC San Diego School of Medicine and then an MPhil from Cambridge. And then you were also a consultant at McKinsey and Company. And uh, what, what I'm curious about is now you have started your own practice. You have, uh, you know, you're a clinical hypnotherapist and also a happiness engineer. So my question to you is, uh, how did this journey unfold for you? Did you always know that this was your passion or because a lot of the questions that we often get from our audience is, you know, uh, how does one go about finding their calling? How does go one, you know, how do we know what our passion is? So it seems like you finally found your passion and your calling as being a happiness engineer and an author and a speaker. So how did this journey unfold for you? Did you always know that this was the way to go or? Certainly not. I mean, I've, I've fallen into almost everything that I've done so far in life. However, the conditions had been favorable for me to fall into it, and that there was some kind of inclination. The one thing that's been constant the entire time is my love of, of learning and books. So when I was a kid, I always loved libraries and bookstores. I'd go in there just kind of be in this state of wonder, and I'd be like, wow, books are so good. Maybe sometime, someday I'll be writing books. And if you're a doctor or if you're a you know, high-powered consultant or something like that, there's not a whole lot of time for writing books, and that's just not your line of work. And, uh, and there was a lot of false starts and and very dramatic turns so i was on the path to become a a physician or a scientist physician and first i decided not to do the phd part then after i went through medical school even after just two years i was pretty sure that was not going to be my thing especially in the current incarnation of medical practice my desire was to be useful to the world and help people and just the way that the current structure of medical practice exists in the united states it seemed like doctors themselves were leading very unhappy and unhealthy lives, and patients uh, were not being served in a way that actually was optimal and uh, got them to a point of, of health. And I'm, I'm interested in health care, not sick care. And it's so much easier to get people on a path of prevention and health maintenance than it is to fix something that's already gone wrong. So in that sense, medicine was not for me, and actually the most recent book I published is called Should I Go to Medical School? An Irreverent Guide to a Career in Deciding About a Career in, uh, in Medicine. And by the way, the short version of that book is no, you should not go <laughs> to medical school. So <laughs> save you save you all eight nine nine. Uh, and so what happened after that was I the constant of my life was creativity and learning, so I uh, moved to Boston to pursue a career in uh, the startup space and start something new and interesting. And uh, that kind of worked out, kind of didn't work out. And this opportunity to go to Cambridge came up, uh, this one-year program, which I uh, call my one-year drinking degree, because that's what you do at Cambridge. You just drink <laughs> a lot. Uh, but it's also a, master in biotech, a master's degree in biotechnology and stuff. And so I went there and uh, learned a lot about pharmaceuticals and uh, the biomedical field and the way it actually happens in enterprise uh, so it's like a little combination like mini mba plus biotech degree 
and came back to do that kind of work at, at McKinsey. Uh, I was always interested in, in drug development. I thought that, you know, drugs have been so instrumental in uh, just improving the quality of people's lives in pharmaceutical companies, creating vaccines, all these different things. So I thought, here's a place where I could really contribute. So I ended up doing this consulting thing. And once I was on the inside of these companies, I was just kind of aghast. It's like, oh my God, there's so much unethical stuff happening. And, you know, as as consultants, I was merely just rubber stamping decisions that were already made. You know, I create this big old decision system and I give the answer and they don't like it. So I go and change it. So I give them the answer that I was giving them. So it was a kind of a soulless job. And and there's this one turning point. There's this one turning point where it was 10.30 p.m. and I was sitting there working on my gigantic 70-column spreadsheet trying to crank out answers. And uh, the big wig, big boss of uh, our division, like the West Coast boss, she was sitting next to me. And she's on the phone. She sounds really irritated. You know when people have this like, really clipped tone and they're like, uh-huh. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Like they can't wait to get off, right? Mm. And then she says, "Okay, okay. Now, now give me your dad." And I'm like, "Oh my god!" She was talking to her five-year-old son, and she could not wait to dismiss him. And I'm like, "Wow, I do not want to become that person because if that's what success looks like, I don't want that." So uh, that's when I decided that it was time. And friends of mine had written books, started successful businesses. This is in around 2000. Uh, five when people didn't really know what ebooks were, and uh, he'd done that very successfully. And I thought, hey, you know, I read his book, and I thought that's a good book. I can write a book that's at least at least as good. So uh, I quietly left my job at McKinsey, didn't tell anybody, and basically spent um, three or four months just writing the book, building a website, and launching the business. And miraculously, it kind of worked. There was there was no net. There was no certainty of success. It was just that, look, if you think you're an entrepreneur, if you think you're a writer, it's time to put your money where your, where your mouth is and just do this. And uh, 12, 12 years later, so far, so good. That's that's beautiful and it's very inspiring. It seems like uh, there were those uh, moments of uh, truth that you really uh, were present to and you chose to uh, make a call regarding your career, your life, and you were clear about what you really wanted in life and you went for it. And oftentimes, you know, we see people that they have an inclination of what they really should be doing, but, uh, you know, circumstances or fears stop them from going for it. And you actually uh, really went for it. So that's really commendable. And uh, so my next question to you is, you know, when we look back at our own lives, uh, there's certain moments, right? There are certain strategic inflection points. Uh, uh, when there is that breakthrough, success happens, right? So when life is never the same again. So has there been a point in your life that uh, you can look back and say, wow, that was like really that turning point in terms of that success? And uh, if so, what was it? Hmm. It's a good question. I really haven't thought of any uh, breakthrough moments, but there's more just arcs and uh also just because of my attachment to eastern wisdom and philosophy what i found is that what you sometimes think is a success on one day years later ends up being like a really terrible thing that happened to you so for example to get that mckinsey job i went through 10 interviews and 
when they gave me the job, I'm like, oh my God, success. And, you know, what they gave me was uh, some of the worst times of my life. So uh, I'm always a little suspicious about uh, trying to strive for something too much and, and, and so-called succeeding. In fact, that's what my latest project is about. It's about, you know, happiness engineering, redefining success uh, in an age of anxiety and greed and, and striving and people being obsessed with status, money, and power. So, uh, so uh, for me, uh, the moments of success have been when I make good decisions with the information at hand. So for me, that decision to no longer have that corporate job, that to me was uh, a success. And even if I hadn't failed, even even if I had failed at the at the venture that come, then that's that for me was the right thing to do. Uh, for me, leaving medicine, that was success because I immediately knew that this is not a good fit for my temperament. This is not a good fit for who I am and what I want to accomplish in life. So uh, even though I had spent four years and uh, got into a whole bunch of debt because of it, you know, it's better four years than 44 years. And the sooner you recognize that as a sunk cost and move on, because sunk cost means that you're never getting it back. Those four years, gone. That debt, that's gonna, that's gone. Uh, so uh, that to me, these it's kind of like a almost like the um, the negative negative space of success, which is, you know, it's the thing that I ended up not doing. To me, those were uh, those were the moments that, in retrospect, led to the upward arc of uh, growth. No, that's uh, that's uh, such a great point, and I think uh, what I'm hearing you say is <clears throat> a couple of things. I think uh, one being, uh, you know, it's, it goes back to your own philosophy uh, that you mentioned earlier. It's like you know, if you're resisting or if there's a struggle, and you know that that kind of like gets in the way of uh, you know not making that kind of an effort to really struggle to a particular destination. And and the second thing that I'm also hearing is, uh, in retrospect, when you look back, what was success in the past may not be like success today. And uh, so it seems like you really made some good calls there. And taking a next, uh, my next question to you, Dr. Ali, is taking a walk down the memory lane here, uh, who were your mentors growing up and whom did you look up to mm-hmm. or whom, do, whom were you fascinated by? Were there any particular people that you want to give a shout out to that's made a difference in your life? Of course, but I, I want to go back to that last thing you said because you said something, making good calls. And one thing that uh, you may not know about me is that I've been playing uh, poker for uh, a long time now and have had you know, moderate success at it. And uh, the thing that every poker tournament has in common is all of them have a winner. Every poker tournament has a winner. There's you know, no exception to that. However, that winner is not always the person you think is supposed to win. It's almost never the best player. Somebody wins, and that somebody, the path that they took to winning is cannot be duplicated. Usually they make a bunch of mistakes and they get lucky, therefore they get a whole bunch of chips, and as a result they end up being catapulted to the front. So my... Uh, my gripe with the whole self-help industry, especially these books about success, is that they're always describing the winners. And they say, hey, here, this guy won the tournament, and this is how. And often, that is not a path that can be duplicated. And there are people who have done exactly that thing. They've made all the right decisions, they've had all the preparations, and they don't make it. They never talk about those. So that's why it's so important to make good decisions. That is what success is. And 
there's a saying from the Bhagavad Gita which says that you are entitled to your labors, but not the fruit of your labors. So the key thing is, are you prepared? Are you doing as much as you can? Are you doing your best? Are you making good decisions? And then the rest is not up to you. And people forget that. And people get down and say, oh, that other person made it. I should have made it. Look, my plan was to make my first 30 million bucks uh, by the age of 30 when I moved to Boston. And, you know, I may have missed that by just a hair. Just join this company versus that company. This company, this company didn't make it. Right. So and if I had people like, wow, amazing. How do you know that? And that's, there's just no way to tell. And a lot of these stories of just massive, massive success have so many components of luck built into them from, like, Google to Microsoft to all of them cannot be duplicated. What you can duplicate is good decision-making and having a good head on your shoulders and being prepared. So, anyway, just want to get that in there. No, that's that's really a good point. And I think uh, one of the philosophies that I've adopted in my life, and I kind of resonate with this, uh, what you just shared is, you know, like having – Instead of focusing on a specific outcome, what I try to do is like build a system of uh, certain parameters built into it that I know if I keep consistently hitting those parameters at some point, it's going to lead to an inevitability of the outcome. And it's more of a systems thinking rather than like a particular outcome thinking. And that's really uh, kind of produced the results that uh, – uh, beyond my wildest imagination. So I think uh, well, it's it's a great point that you make. So uh, going back to my previous question about yes. mentors, uh, so were there any uh, particular uh, people or role models that uh, that influenced you or you want to kind of give a shout-out to that people who have made a difference? Well, the my favorite book of all time in terms of sheer number of times read is The Tao Te Ching, and the shadowy author of that is Lao Tzu, which is really just means old guy, <laughs> wise guy, or wise guy, basically. So it's not, I mean, I can be a real person, but, but the wisdom has always resonated with me and just the, t- the way of thinking. Um, Richard Feynman, the physicist, uh, just being a combination of not just brilliant, but brilliant at using the mind that he was given. Supposedly his IQ wasn't much more than, you know, 125, but he was smart at using what he had. And that's so important that a lot of super successful people, they've just been really good at implementing uh, what they already have, their own gifts, and having robust ways of thinking and problem solving. And as you said, systems. The systems make a big difference. Uh, so those are two people that come to mind. Um, I mean, I have, I have so many so many personal heroes uh, that right now may not be coming to mind, but, you know, basically scientists in general have always been a big inspiration and people just going out there and discovering things that weren't there before and doing it without any any knowledge of what's going to happen how it's going to happen and just forging on especially since you know i kind of left a scientific career so my eternal admiration for those people who continue doing that and push back the frontiers of knowledge that's awesome uh, moving on to uh, and shifting gears here a little bit, uh, and I want to kind of like uh, get into some of your personal hobbies and interests and in travel, particularly because uh, recently, I think a couple of months ago, uh, I was checking uh, one of your blog posts online and I found out that you were doing a, 
presentation. I think it was out of Bali or Portugal. I don't remember now, but it was a nomad talk. So my question to you is, uh, what's your favorite place to travel? And uh, I know you've been on a constant traveling journey over the last few few years. So any particular place that uh, you've traveled to that you've really enjoyed? And any uh, what, what about this place you value so much? Uh, well, Bali was great. Uh, Ubud is a is the cultural center of Bali, and I really appreciated it because it's this mixture of the old and the new, and just you know, very warm people, very spiritual, um, at the same time very connected to the earth and and water. Uh, and then you know you got the modernity of Indonesia coming in there too, and it's also a big uh, yoga center and place, great place for meditation. Super green. Um, and you know, a lot of contrast too. I mean, you know, you've got these people who are sweet and kind of also like super duper superstitious. So it's just, just amazing mixture of stuff. And, and also as a Westerner, you go there and you have so much freedom. You just hop on a, you hop on a moped and go wherever, uh, right before I went to Bali, um, I was in Melbourne and I was particularly impressed by Melbourne because so many cities, especially in the United States, really aren't that user-friendly. So a place like San Francisco, everybody just raves about, but the public transportation there is you know, pretty terrible. And Los Angeles as well. These are the two cities I've spent the most time in. And, uh, and you know, you've got pollution, you've got all these issues, um, you know, education's not that great, schooling is difficult, it's expensive, and, and Melbourne just seems to have a lot of this figured out. They have like two, three tiers of public transportation system. You can get anywhere you want quickly and cheaply. Everything's clean. There's tons of green space. There's government-sponsored arts, activities, theater. And it was just like this platonic ideal of a city if you enjoy city living. So I uh, really love Melbourne, and maybe I'll end up living there somewhere. Um, and, and, and Vienna as well. Vienna is also one of my favorites uh, just because it's just, just so imbued with culture. And just like Melbourne, just the basically European version of Melbourne, that you get so many things right and, and such a just so steeped in history and culture and and science and all these amazing people there you know brahms beethoven sigmund freud uh the secession movement you know gustav klimt uh you name it they all came from vienna so uh these are some places that i've been uh particularly impressed by oh and of course paris everybody loves paris going to the louvre is kind of amazing and the entire city is one gigantic museum no, that's great, and I, I've, uh, I've definitely have had a fascination for Europe as well. I recently had a chance to uh, visit uh, Paris and uh, Spain, and uh, spent almost a couple of weeks in Barcelona and Mallorca, and uh, then I had a trip to Granada, which is like another beautiful uh, city. So yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's definitely it's uh, the old uh, grandeur of uh, okay. Europe is beautiful. So the next question I have for you, and consider this, uh, Dr. Ali, a hypothetical situation. Let's say we have a machine, and if you could go back in time and uh, talk to your young self, let's say your 20-year-old self, what advice would you give him? Yeah, this is something that I arrived at a few years ago, and it was the work of Carol Dweck. She's a Stanford psychologist who writes about mindset, and the idea is that you can either have a growth mindset or you can have a fixed mindset. So growth mindset, a fixed mindset means that you basically think that, hey, you're born with a certain amount of talent and that's pretty much it. And that's what determines your success. Growth mindset means that, hey, the harder I work, the better I do. 
right? And whatever talent I have, that just helps me catalyze the amount of good work that I can do. And it dawned on me some time ago that I was basically, I grew up having a fixed mindset. And I was a smart kid, and, you know, I aced all my classes, you know, got skipped grades. Everybody said, ooh, Alan, you're so smart. I'm like, great, thank you. And so I kind of coasted through life until I got to Harvard. And uh, there, I bit off more than I could chew. And, you know, now you're dealing with people who are world class. These are not just average smart people. These are the smartest people in the world and the hardest working. So, and I just didn't have the uh, work ethic in place. And when I encountered my first failure, then I was like, oh my God, now I'm dumb. And you know, the fall from grace, in, in, after I read this book by Cal Dweck, I realized, oh, wow, that was me. So I really wish I had known that then, because then I would have, first of all, not taken that first failure so seriously, because it really changed the entire course of my, of my college career and then you know, my subsequent adult life. Uh, and, and it would have led to a changing of my, my work habits in a way that would have probably led to a lot more productivity and success uh, all the years later. So that's probably what I've said to my, to my uh, younger self. No, that's uh, a adopt. great, yeah, that's yeah, a great I, point. Uh, and uh, we'll include that uh, book in the show links, uh, Carol Dweck's uh, book on uh, the growth mindset as well as yeah, uh, the fixed called, mindset. I believe it's called Mindset. Mindset. Okay, fantastic. Uh, we're going to shift gears here, uh, Dr. Ali, and I want to kind of like get into um, uh, the presentation and being a public speaker. And I know that uh, you train executive speakers with KNP Communications and uh, so one of the things that I'm really fascinated by, and that was the book that had come out, uh, I believe one of your colleagues, John Neffinger, it was Correct. Compelling People, The Hidden Qualities That Make Us Influential. Yes, and, Matt, Matt Cohut and John Neffinger, they're, uh, they're two of the co-founders of KNP. So that's the, the N and the K that's then that's uh, code in So yes, go ahead. So yeah, that's great. And so the question that I have for you is one, what are some of the main principles, if you will, uh, behind being a compelling speaker so that presentations go better and better every time you make them, right? So go, why don't you just walk us through your methodology with as far as KNP Communications is concerned and your take on what makes somebody a compelling speaker? Yeah, it's a great question. And public speaking is something that is so important in people's lives because when you're doing it, it usually means it really matters, right? So uh, most people, it's you know 98% of the time they're not doing any public speaking. But when it's happening, it's important that you get it right. And when people encounter us in person, they're unconsciously noticing a couple of things instantaneously. So at the unconscious level, they're noticing whether you are friend or foe, so that's warmth. And whether you are competent or incompetent, and that's strength. So basically, you got these people in the savannah two million years ago. They bump into each other and they're trying to size each other up. And like, okay, is this guy? Does can this guy hurt me? And is he going to hurt me? Right? And that's friend or foe and competence. So that has carried on to this present day, and we have these deep unconscious mechanisms for detecting 
those two qualities, strength and warmth, in other people. And we're conveying that to people via three channels. There's the visual channel. That's how you present yourself with your body, with your facial gestures. There's the vocal channel. That's how you use your voice. Is it a high reedy voice like this coming out of your nose? Or is it this like deep rumble coming from your diaphragm, which conveys a lot more strength and warmth? And then finally, there's the verbal channel. What are the words that you're actually using? Are you like going like, um, yeah, like, uh, mm, are you using distractors, are you using fillers? Or instead, do you pause and say what you want to say with great authority and no fear of having other people wait for you? So I'm demonstrating the concepts as I'm talking about them, uh, as, as I'm sure you noticed. And the idea is that once you are become aware of the two things you're trying to convey and the three channels, then you can control it. And the speed with which you can change these things is remarkable. So in a coaching session, what I do is I have people do a one-minute speech and I video record it. I show them that. I say, okay, here's the baseline. Now let's work on this. Great, let's work on this. Great, let's work on this. And within an hour, they go from you know, like a 20 to an 80. Uh, if they're an 80, they can go from 80 to like a 95. From, you know, from if they're a 90, they can go to a 90, from a 90 to 95, sorry, from 80 to uh, 90 and the 95. And then if they really want to work at it, then that top little bit of becoming like truly world-class, that's what takes a lot of effort. However, to go from not really knowing what you're doing to much, much better, that can happen very quickly. And the third dimension is presence. So once you have the warmth and the strength, then I help people work on presence, which means that, hey, are you fully there? Are you able to respond to people in real time and connect to them as humans? Because most of the time when people are giving a speech, they just go up there and they're hoping nothing goes wrong and they're hoping they look good, which is entirely the wrong mindset. The proper mindset is, how can I serve my audience? You're up there, you're giving a talk. Why are you giving a talk? The only reason to give a talk is because you want to change the world for the better. You want to help people, you want to elevate people, you want to teach them something useful. So if you get in that service mindset, it becomes much more difficult to screw up. In fact, screwing up becomes almost meaningless because, hey, I'm here to serve. So how can I serve? So these principles, if you combine them, and you know, I don't expect anybody to be able to do all that stuff and instantly after I talked about it for two minutes. But those are the principles. And uh, uh, my colleagues laid it out very nicely in uh, Compelling People. And there's another book that I recommend. It's called uh, Steal the Show by Michael Port, P-O-R-T. So I consider that like advanced training. And he just takes it to a whole new level of, of charisma and showmanship. And there's also another book by a friend of mine called uh, uh, The Charisma... Myth. Uh, myth is that uh, yeah, the Curse of Myth? Yeah, about Olivia Fox. Olivia Cabana. Fox Cabana, so, yeah. yeah, so these are all great resources you can consult, and <clears throat> and the idea, and they all reiterate the same stuff too, which is you know you got strength, you got warmth. This is how you do it. So visually, you know, you want to be a little, you want to take up space. If you want to be strong, be like that girl. Take up space. Uh, if you want to be warm visually, smile. When you smile, people think, oh, this person is not out to hurt me. You smile, you look people directly in the eye, you raise your eyebrows. It's called the you know, eyebrow raise, and you do that. 
and that way people feel at ease. You want to convey strength through the vocal channel. You want to drop your voice, make it more resonant. You want to convey uh, warmth through the vocal channel. That dropping voice actually still helps. That'll get the resonance. Makes you feel both. Makes you convey both warmth and strength. And also having that melody going, having that up and down melody of speaking, that also conveys warmth. As opposed to talking like this in a monotone like a robot, which makes people think, who is this guy? Why should I listen to him? So all these things, as soon as you do them, people are like, oh, yeah, that that makes a difference. But because what they're doing is unconscious, they just have no idea what they're doing right or wrong. So that's where uh, my training comes in and I can see what they're doing and then modify it to make it more effective. That's such a great point. And I think uh, just to summarize it, it seems like there are three channels that you can modulate. Essentially, it's the nonverbal, it's uh, the tonality of the voice, and then obviously uh, uh, the content of the speech and uh, what you focus on on the audience. Uh, So here's another question that comes up is... Now, there are some natural speakers out there, like, you know, who have the personal magnetism, like Bill Clinton for that comes to mind, or Oprah Winfrey, or, you know, Clint Eastwood. Now, so my question to you is, do you think there are natural born charismatic people and then, and then people uh, who are not natural, can they actually really kind of like hone their skill set? And if so... Uh, you know, does that come across as inauthentic if you're trying to work on something that is not natural to you? That's a great question. So I do believe that in any realm of endeavor, there are people who have a certain amount of talent and certain people who have less of that talent. That said, nobody is really a naturally great public speaker. You can start out being more willing to do it, but initially nobody really knows what the hell they're doing. And you know, I can say without without bragging that people think I'm a really good public speaker and I look like a natural, like, oh, have you always been this way? And no, it's all manufactured. It's all something that you practice, something that you get better at, something that you train, something you want to do videos, look at your own videos, which is really hard to do. It's like, oh, God, cringe. Oh, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. But you know what? That's what it takes to become better. It's an iterative process. You get better and better by tra- getting coached, by training yourself. So, In that sense, you know, maybe all doctors should quit because being skilled doctor, you know, being a neurosurgeon, that's 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 insincere and disingenuous. You should be a naturally good neurosurgeon. Nobody thinks that, right? Nobody thinks you should be a naturally good race car driver. You practice. So this is again the idea of is are you doing this because of your ego or are you doing it because you want to serve? And the better public speaker you become the more people are able to pay attention, the more they're able to absorb what you're saying, the more they're able to take you seriously. And if you have a message that is worth conveying, then you're doing a great service to the world by being a good public speaker. And I still think that if Hillary Clinton had slightly warmer public speaking skills such that people loved her on top of respecting her, then perhaps the outcome of the last election may have been different, right? And someone like Bill Clinton, you better believe he's worked his ass off to get that good. He's, of course, a brilliant man. He's super articulate, but nobody starts out being that good. So to everybody who's listening to this who wants to be a better public speaker, I encourage you to practice, practice, practice. And there are a lot of free resources online. You can go on there, watch YouTube videos, uh, you can you know, hire coaches like us, whatever it takes. 
this is a key skill, and it's something that can be cultivated. I don't care how scared you are. And, you know, as a clinical hypnotherapist, I've helped a lot of people overcome phobias, overcome fear. So even if you are the biggest scaredy cat of them all when it comes to public speaking, guess what? That can change in a matter of days. And in a matter of months, you can become truly excellent at this. And, you know, I just urge you to believe that. It is, there is this, this whole territory, this whole country on the other side of fear and this identity of for yourself, of, oh, I'm just not a public speaker. Nobody's a public speaker. Nobody's born this way. So you're all in the same boat. You all start there. Let's get practicing. Let's start learning. Let's get better at it. That's great. Excellent. That's really uh, inspiring to hear that, that this is a skill that can be uh, cultivated and, uh, you know, mastered if you're really committed to it. And we'll definitely include uh, all the links uh, in our show notes because most of our audience who are listening to this are, you know, corporate executives, professionals, and, uh, you know, entrepreneurs who are, yeah. you know, working on their pitches and trying to make a yeah. sale or presentation. And, so. and that's that's one of the most gratifying aspects of my work, which is, you can get somebody to change so fast and so much uh, just in a short space of time because everybody's got this potential. I mean, people think, oh, I'm not a real public speaker. Well, you know, unless you like to talk to yourself a lot, <laughs> which is kind of weird, that means every time you've spoken, you've spoken in public. You're, sp- you're speaking to somebody else or somebody's else while other people are hearing you. So every time you're speaking, you're already public speaking. And all I'm teaching people is to how to be able to take that same connection, how that same conversational skill to one on many situations such that you're touching all of them as opposed to just one by touching. I mean, like, you know, you're moving them emotionally, touching everybody in a, in a, a lecture hall would be uh, a little strange and also uh, kind of difficult to do. So the idea is to move them emotionally and connect with them. And it's just a matter of thinking of this as a, slightly different kind of skill that can be acquired that's great excellent and uh, um, my next question to you dr ali and this is uh, related to uh, the other dimension of your work which is happiness engineering and and i want to kind of talk to you about the five pillars that uh, you uh, touch upon as part of this Uh, but my question really comes down to is uh, having seen the ebb and flow of life and having traveled to different countries and, uh, you know, having accomplished all these amazing credentials. And so now when you look back at your life or at this point in your career and your life, what do you say is your definition of a good life or a successful life? Yeah, well, um, I've been a meditator for some time and I've been deep into Eastern wisdom for a long time. And, and one of the foundational principles of Buddhism is, uh, is shunyata. Uh, or emptiness, which means that really nothing has any identity. And and one of the foundational uh, uh, tenets of, of Taoism is is the idea of no nameness. The first chapter of the Tao Te Ching says uh, the Tao that has a name is not the real Tao. The name that has a real name is not the real name. That has a name is not the real name. All everything that is true and everlasting is nameless. And you know, as soon as you shoot out into outer space. There's no road signs, there's no labels, there's no languages, there's no names, there's nothing. So, basically, life is kind of devoid of meaning all by itself. It's just there. And you can remove this little blue ball known as planet Earth and toss it out and the rest of the universe would keep on spinning. So, we make 
meaning for ourselves. You basically decide, hey, my game in life is this, and I'm going to play it well. And, and that's it. That's pretty much it. So what is your game going to be? And for me, my game is some mixture of learning, connection, and service. So am I learning new things? Am I connecting with people through those learnings? And am I helping others grow through that? And to me, that gives my life meaning. And the happiness engineering work, that's a big part of it, which is what are you spending? So the second pillar is purpose and meaning. What are you spending eight to 10 hours a day doing? Are you working to fulfill somebody else's dream? That's called a job. Or are you working to fulfill your own dreams and move forward towards your own growth and uh, fulfilling kind of your destiny, the thing, the game that you want to be playing? So a lot of people resign themselves to just having that job and fulfilling somebody else's dreams. If you're even working for some really cool company like Facebook or, or Google, I mean, then you're fulfilling Mark Zuckerberg's dream. Really highly paid to do it, but it's not. it wasn't your company. It's not your idea. If you're working for Google, kind of the same thing. So what is it that you want to do that's meaningful to you? And uh, to me, that the, the statistics say that between you know 60 and 80% of Americans, they're not engaged in their life's purpose. And... I don't know how many time, how many lifetimes do you think you're going to get? <laughs> Last time I checked, you only get one of them. So why spend time on other people's uh, ideas of a meaningful life when you could be spending it on your own? Now I understand that most people don't have luxury of just taking off and saying, "Hey, wife and kids, sign I'm going to go find my own purpose." So it's possible to also inject meaning and purpose into your life within your work, or maybe as a side thing, or maybe you go and you engage in some kind of public service, you go and read to kids, you work in some kind of kitchen uh, or garden, or maybe at work you do mentoring. And a big part of meaning involves service. And the research has been done on this and it's pretty definitive. Like the more you engage in service, the more you engage in helping others, the more you're kind of hitting that pro-social part of the brain that's been around for, you know, 3.4 million years. That's how we evolved on the savannah and bands of you know 150 or fewer people the more you engage that the more fulfilled you're going to feel so and this is in contradistinction to going after status money power which is this treadmill that never ends and i know people who've achieved status money and power and still are pretty miserable they're actually you know they're not that healthy and they're always kind of jittery and they're addicted to things and and is that happiness i'm not sure so I don't know if I answered your question, kind of veered off in that, but uh, the whole happiness engineering program is about going for the real thing as opposed to the menu, which people, you know, they, they, people are hungry and they get the menu and they start like chewing on the menu. It's like, hey, this is kind of, you know, this is kind of chewy and not very nutritious. What the hell? It's like, well, that's not the real thing. Status, money, and power, they're just symbols of the real thing. And the real thing is fulfillment. The real thing is connection. The real thing is purpose. The real thing is getting good sleep. The real thing is you know, managing your mind well through meditation and mindfulness. The real thing is getting good exercise to have a healthy body, body management. So uh, I urge people to take some time and think for themselves, hey, am I going for the real thing of success or am I going for mere representations, mere symbols? 
No, that is so great. And I, I think uh, I really resonate with uh, your point about, you know, following your calling and purpose. We had a guest uh, uh, on the show and, you know, one of the questions that, uh, you know, a really highly accomplished uh, individual was uh, the CEO of a top German uh, tech conglomerate. And, and you know, when asked his definition of success, I mean, his was like, you know, when you find your calling, when you find your purpose and you're living that and honoring it, you know, that is success. And, and I, I I could not agree more with the point about those five pillars of happiness engineering. And uh, I want to kind of like branch out into, uh, you mentioned a little bit about being fulfillment-centered. And this was uh, also mentioned in your book, which I highly, highly recommend for a lot of single men out there who are looking to... uh, uh, you know, have a relationship of their dreams or trying to find a partner that they uh, feel uh, is aligned with their values and their vision of life. It's called the Tao of Dating for Men. And, uh, and there's also un- the women's version. And there is, a, uh, yeah, and there's another version which is also very popular. I believe it's been uh, the highest rated dating book on Amazon for four years. Is that correct? But the, the version for women uh, has done well, which is good because otherwise I would have been run out of town. So <laughs> that's very lucky. No, that is great. And and so uh, we'll definitely include all of this in our show notes. So my question to you is on being fulfillment-centered. And, uh, you know, you kind of like alluded earlier to the point about the map versus the territory. Yeah. You know, on being, uh, it's like, you know, you're hungry right now and somebody uh, gives you like the menu, would you settle for that, right? And uh, right. so that's that's really the point. So the question is, how can one start, uh, and I kind of like thought of another question here too, but I really want to kind of dig into the fulfillment centered, because given the constant distractions that we in the modern age face, you know, with technology, with uh, ambitions and societal expectations and the conditioning that we've been subjected to over the years. Yeah. Like, how does one go about really, uh, you know, focusing inwards and like fulfillment centered, like really like, you know, and not just seeing it, but being in tune with that on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's a fantastic question. It's taken me uh, a good while to figure out how that works, and I'm still figuring it out every day. And a big part of it is, like you said, really being in touch with yourself. And in this world of distraction, you know, T.S. Eliot said in The Wasteland, I think, he said, you know, distracted from distraction by distraction, uh, and that was 70 years ago. It's very easy to get on the path of somebody else's fulfillment. And somebody else could be something as subtle as, you know, a billboard. It could be an ad. It could be a magazine. You pick up one of these men's magazines and have these bikini-clad hotties, and you're thinking, that's what I should want, right? What you don't know is that if you actually got that, that could be your worst nightmare. And I've been there. It's happened. And it was. So (laughs) sometimes there are there are representations of fulfillment that aren't the real thing, just like the menu we talked about. So, so much of real success in life, so much of true fulfillment in life is being in touch with your own feelings. Hey, is this how I want to be feeling? Hey, is this how I want to be growing in life? Is this person who's in my life a catalyst to my growth? Is this fancy job I have that's paying me six digits you know, am I sleeping well? Am I happy with myself? Or do I hear the footsteps of my boss and immediately my heart rate goes up and I'm kind of miserable, right? Even though I have excellent perks and my mom thinks finally my son has a legitimate job, right? So these are all things because the world 
is filled with these symbols of so-called success. And that could be the you know, tall, good-looking, rich boyfriend or husband who's so successful that he's never around. How is that fulfilling if you want a real relationship? Or you've got the really good-looking, sexy girlfriend who's, you know, your dream girl. You always wanted somebody like that, but she's kind of mentally unbalanced and maybe addicted to things and is making your life miserable and is really demanding, right? So as opposed to somebody who actually makes you feel good about life and makes you reach higher and further. So when it comes to dating relationships, I always say, go with how this person feels. How do you feel in the presence of this person, with the presence of this person in your life? Are you better off or are you worse off? And if you're a guy and there's a woman who makes you feel like you're 50 feet tall and can accomplish anything, that's the kind of one you want to be with. If there's somebody who's always like saying, you're not enough, well, I don't know. You know, some people just, they're, they're, kind of looking to be somebody's bitch and i don't know why but i think like 20 percent of any country's population wants that and those people voted for the current president because that's just how they feel at home and if that is you you want to look at these partners and say oh my god maybe i'm picking this person because i kind of have this deep underlying unconscious desire to be treated poorly and realize that you know what even you don't have the right to make that choice because you have a gift to give to the world and that gift is not yours it was given to you by the world and so you have an obligation to go out there and cultivate that gift and give it and if there's somebody there that for some reason you've hooked up with and is now your partner and is diminishing your ability to give that gift is not a catalyst to your greatness is not enabling you to give that gift that is the wrong partner and you have no right to be with that partner and I see that happening so many times and so many just great, amazing men, women, just this is the biggest decision you make in life, that partner that you choose. So choose well. And if your friends, I mean, people get stuck in these patterns, right? It comes from childhood and, you know, it's unfortunate. These are all unconscious things. And you, people usually can't tell themselves whether they're in this kind of bad relationship. So the signs are if your friends are saying, hey, you know, I really don't think this person is that great for you. Listen to them. See what they have to say. And maybe reconsider. I mean, that's how I got to writing the, the Dow Dating Book for Women, which is I had this amazing friend. And, you know, she was my classmate at Harvard, really successful, you know, great family. And she was this boyfriend that she was supporting because he was, you know, a starving artist. And uh, I found out that for the 18 months that they've been dating, he was beating her up. And I'm like, what? You're supporting him to beat you up? And it made no sense. So if what I'm saying today or my books can get one person to change his or her mind and reconsider where they are and kind of snap out of it and realize, hey, I've got to give, get it. I've got to give my gift to the world. I have time for this shit. Sayonara. Then, you know, this, this whole exercise will have been worthwhile.
Yeah, and I think it goes back to your point of uh, serving others. And, and I think uh, it reminds me of that quote uh, about fulfillment by uh, in uh, Tao Te Ching, which is, if you look to others for fulfillment, you'll never truly oh, yeah. be fulfilled. And uh, if your happiness depends on external circumstances, no, you know, you'll never be happy. And then when you realize it's all within you and you know, you're content with what you have, it's uh, the whole world belongs to you. Yeah. And I think yeah. uh, that's... Uh, that's such a and, and I and now what I just said uh, may have been useful, but not a hundred percent useful because I didn't give people the way to get there and the way to be more in touch with your own feelings and be responsive to your own emotions and make better decisions is to meditate. Mm. And I mean, there's there's almost <laughs> no way around. This is the brain training you need to become more emotionally aware because otherwise, what's happening is you know your brain's going like a little pinball all over the place and your body's doing something, your stomach's doing something, you have a thought in your head, it all gets to be one big jumble. But once you develop the skill of focus and of kind of clearing your mind, then when something pops in, you're like, hey, what was that? Why do I feel a little weird? Oh, because that girl that I saw as I was driving, she had the same like short blonde haircut as that person who treated me really poorly. And that kind of made me remind me of that relationship. And now I'm feeling a little down. There's actually nothing wrong with me or the world. And then, like any other emotion, it passes, and then you're fine. As opposed to allowing that to take you down to the next level. Oh, you know, nobody loves me. Oh, the world's miserable. Oh, this is all I deserve. So it's so important to train yourself. This is like running. So if you want to run a marathon, you don't just sign up for it the night before and run it. That's how you get injured forever right and so life is kind of like a marathon and so you want to develop the fitness of mind to be able to clearly see what you are doing this is what uh, in tantric philosophy they call witness consciousness and in psychology and neuroscience they call it uh, metacognition and the idea is having thoughts about your thoughts and becoming aware of your thoughts like you step back you kind of look at the thought and you realize hey that's a thought I am not that thought, and that thought can pass. It's just like clouds in the sky, right? The clouds are not the sky. Behind the clouds, there's always that clear sky. So in the same way, behind those thoughts, there's always the clarity of your consciousness. You, the real you, that's who you are. You are the TV screen. You're not the, the fuzz. You're not the program that you screen. You are the clean TV screen. That That's your consciousness. That's who you really are. And if you make that your identity as opposed to passing thoughts or emotions – then you become much more robust, much more resilient, much more effective. That's uh, beautiful. And I think, uh, you know, it uh, It kind of like for me, uh, it's the litmus test of, uh, you know, when I look at, uh, you know, if, if I'm actually uh, living that life or the fulfillment-centered life, it's like, uh, you know, I look at it as a spectrum. On one end, you have the higher self, and the, and then the, on the other end, you have the lower self. And when I'm in the higher self, there is this natural feelings of love compassion joy you know being cheerful and being more of a service to others and then on the other end you obviously have anger and you know uh, sadness and those kind of negative feelings toxic feelings that uh, that basically is a litmus test to know exactly at what point and what range of the spectrum i'm at and you know that's an indication for me to go back and meditate and you know get back to the centered uh, state so now that's a that's a great point and I would be remiss if I didn't touch upon one other concept, which mm. uh, 
which is abundance. I know abundance. you talk. Yes. Uh, could you tell, uh, talk us, uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, you know abundance is the way of the universe and why having Absolutely. that mindset is important. Absolutely. And I'm going to give you the updated version because there's a version in my books, and you know since then I've actually kind of developed it a little further. And the idea is that if you look around you, the world is made of stuff. This is not a revelatory observation. However, you also notice it's not made of not stuff. It's not made of antimatter. It's not made of nothing. It's made of stuff. So the world is abundance. That's what the world is. And there's also enough stuff to go around for everybody. And this concept I first talked about in the context of the Dow dating books in terms of finding a partner. It's like, okay, so how many partners do you want? Well, you know, one is usually more than most people can handle, so let's go with one. And how many people are there in the world? Eh, seven billion, right? So if you're a guy, there's an option, you know, whatever age you are, there's hundreds of thousands, millions of potential partners out there, right? Even if you live in a small town, there's going to be hundreds, if not thousands. And so the idea is that you can either have the mindset that, oh, there's nothing out there for me. All the good ones are taken. All the nice guys are gay or married. All the nice girls, um, you know, they've already been scooped up. Uh, poor little me. Or you can think, hey, there's so many options in this world. There's so many opportunities for loving. And, and also kind of going, when people are in the scarcity mindset, it usually comes with the not enoughness mindset of themselves. It comes from the am I enough and that's just entirely the wrong focus because what you're capable of doing is at any moment in life, you are able to go out there and appreciate people. You're able to go and make people feel like a million bucks and nobody can take that power away from you. Whereas the whole am I enough thing, even if for a moment you feel enough, that can instantly be taken away from you. Somebody can say, you know what, that's a terrible outfit or wow, that talk you gave sucked, right? And suddenly that ego that you puffed up gets deflated. But if you go in that kind of serving mode, if you go in that mode of, hey, here's an opportunity for me to appreciate another human being, crazy thing is that power is unlimited and nobody holds you back. And so few people are doing it. The good news is that if you start doing it, you will have a monopoly on whatever you're doing. So if, it, if it's about dating, I mean, if you're a woman, you go around complimenting guys, guys be like, oh my God, I feel like I'm 10 feet tall. This woman's amazing. Who is she, right? And as a result of being in this abundance mindset, of being in this giving mindset, you know, that thing that you thought that was missing from your life, like say love, if you're giving it away in such quantities, that means you must have a massive store of it. And people notice that you start to glow. And when you start to glow, people start to surround you. And so you've solved all these different problems. You're no longer lonely. Now you have choice. But most important, you feel great. And now you're coming from a place of abundance as opposed to a place of scarcity and need. And so you're already like 98% of the way to fulfillment. And as a result, if a partner comes along, then hallelujah, even better. But in the meantime, you have developed the skill to make yourself feel great independent of circumstance. And that, to me, is probably the most important life skill. That is beautiful. I'm not even going to touch that. That's awesome. And uh, moving on to uh, the next section here, and in the interest of time, we'll kind of like uh, rush through this, which is the rapid fire round. And this is where okay. I'm going to ask you a bunch of quick questions, Dr. Ali, and it's the first response that comes to your mind. Sure. And uh, so, are you ready? Uh, as ready as I'll be. <laughs> All right. 
So the first question for you is, who's your favorite music band? Duran Duran. Mm, uh, now you know. <laughs> There's a song of Come Undone that's one of my favorites. But Oh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I was thinking about that yesterday. It's funny you should mention that. Yeah. The next question, uh, what's one thing you can do that might surprise other people? Uh, well, I guess people already know I do uh, clinical hypnotherapy. I also do stage hypnosis shows. So, you know, make people uh, quack like dogs and bark like chickens. Wow. <laughs> That's fascinating. Because, and and you know, anybody can make people quack like ducks and bark like dogs but if you can make them you know quack like dogs and bark like chickens that's <laughs> that's uh, that's more interesting that is absolutely interesting okay the next question is if you could have witnessed one event in history what would that be one event that's fascinating i just finished reading this book about uh, j robert oppenheimer so i think it would have been great to be in the midst of the manhattan project mm. just to be around the most a brilliant group of scientists ever assembled in the history of mankind. Uh, so, okay. And uh, next question is uh, the five most important things in life, according to you. Five most important things in life. Wow, that's a good one. So, uh, I think bodily health is very important because that's the vehicle that enables you to go and do everything else. And uh, service is important because that makes you feel good and gives you purpose and uh, makes you a useful entity in the world. Um, let's see, five most important things. Um, kind of corollary to the first one, exercise. Exercise doesn't just take care of your body, but also takes care of your mind. Makes you, uh, gives you a healthier mind and a smarter mind. And... Um, Sleep, that's one of my five pillars. Uh, I just finished reading a book on sleep. It's kind of amazing by Matthew Walker, uh, The Science of Sleep. Uh, remarkable book, and, you know, it's the corner, it's like the, the centerpiece of everything in your life, and people know so little about it, and it's just so, so, so important. There's almost nothing more important than that. And, uh, and finally, just friendship. I think a, we are hypersocial beings and we're designed to connect and i think that's that's so important and maybe in in these days of electronic communication that's something that's been sadly compromised so uh to me that's what gives my life meaning gives it gives it purpose it's it's the it's the basis of everything that i do and making friends whether i see them whether they're far away and kind of having people in this circle of compassion such that you're in a position to uh to serve help and connect that's awesome. Is that five? Is that yeah, five? That's, yeah, you did definitely cover five. Okay. And okay. then uh, one final question within the rapid fire round, and that is uh, if, and I'm really uh, curious about your response to this, if you could ask God one question, mm. what would that be? Hmm. So, okay. So, assume, well, I'm assuming by God means somebody who is omniscient, the person who has all the answers. Yep. Okay. <laughs> However, you want to define it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, if there were some some omniscient being who did have the all the answers, um, basically, in all this Eastern wisdom, especially Taoism, there's this whole notion of you know go with the flow, be very calm, be very relaxed, and at the same time, you want to be of service to the world. So I would ask Mister Know It All, Yo, how do you reconcile this whole idea of being super chilled out, you know, in a hammock and going with the flow of the universe and 
being a force for good and out there doing stuff, you know, having ambition and accomplishing stuff. So that's, that is the question I would ask. That is a great question. <laughs> awesome. Uh, and then moving on to our final section, this is the wrap-up section here, and I got three final questions for you, and that is, yeah. the first one is, what is your current personal or business passion project that you're working on, and what are you looking forward to in the next six months to a year from now? Yeah, so uh, happiness engineering is the project that I'm working on currently. Pretty excited about it, and it's about you know, the five pillars of authentic success, redefining success in the modern age, going from focusing on status, money, and power to focusing on, hey, what is my true purpose in life? So number one being connections, relationships, that's the most important. Number two being uh, life purpose. Number three is sleep. Four is mind management. Are you meditating? Are you mindful? Are you evoking certain emotions in your mind like awe and wonder that actually enable you even to serve even better and finally um body management so are you doing the right things in terms of diet and exercise to keep the vehicle in tip-top shape so it can do everything else so uh, that's like basically five books smooshed into one um but it covers a lot of things that i'm super interested in and i look forward to be able to crank out all the elements of that and uh help people live happier, healthier lives for as long as they're sticking around. No, that's great. And uh, we'll include all of that in our show links here. And uh, and then the next question is, what are three things you're grateful for in life? Grateful for. So uh, tremendously grateful for being born in a loving and very healthy family. So, you know, both my uh, grandmother lived to be 95. My parents are are here, and um, and you know they they did a great job, and just were always kind and caring. And and um, having been around the block a couple of times, I know that a lot of people out there uh, maybe weren't as lucky, and uh, you know divorce and, and strife and various things. So for that, that is just super insanely lucky. Um, second, I'm tremendously grateful that um, I was kind of raised bilingual and i think that changed a lot of things and just uh, makes your brain much more receptive to certain learnings and and probably probably responsible for my um for my interest in in learning in books and languages and all these things and uh third thing i'm grateful for hmm there is so much but the third one i'm i'm gonna go with health again uh i think you know i've been super duper lucky to to have a a useful and able vehicle, um, you know, agile mind, you know, healthy, happy body uh, that served me well so far. And you know, if you have that, then everything else is kind of gravy. And you know, I hope that people recognize and appreciate um, the health that they have, and realize that all these other things, status, money, power you know, Mercedes, Rolls Royce, whatever, all that is secondary. So this this is the main show. That's great. So Dr. Ali, I would like to acknowledge you uh, for a few things here. One being, uh, you know, you really are a true embodiment of living a life uh, that is centered around learning, connecting, and service. And uh, the fact that 
I've uh, you know I've been uh, following your uh, successes and your progress and your work over the last uh, many many years now. It's like being a true fan, and really for the fact that you know you really go out there and research uh, the best of the best material. Uh, you know, be it scientific journals or be it the best books out there, and then you distill it in such a format that you pass it on and uh, pay it forward for uh, everybody else in the community that they can learn from and, uh, uh, you know, develop themselves. So I think that's your generosity uh, that uh, shines through that action. And and finally, uh, you know, you really live, you're really a living a life that is uh, inspiring for all of us. I mean, honestly, having accomplished so much, in your life in terms of credentials and going to some of the best schools and and still like putting the money where uh, you know where it really uh, matters and in terms of showing us the way so I really really appreciate uh, uh, you know you being such a role model for uh, the next generation that uh, uh, you know they're coming coming on and uh, so so thank you again and I uh, one thank fun, you Cal yeah I appreciate my, appreciate your work you know f- picking all these great teachers to come and disseminate the word that I think uh, you also deserve acknowledgement for, for doing that. And I appreciate the feedback. So one final question, and this mm-hmm. is uh, this is how we wrap up all our interviews, and that mm-hmm. is, why do you think people should listen to the wisdom of friends? Well, because friends often know what's best for you better than you do. Mm. That's uh, short and sweet. I like that. And uh, so, again, thank you so much for your time and candid answers. I really valued and appreciated our conversation this evening. And for those who are listening, with that, we'll wrap it up. And if you like what you heard, please share. Don't be shy. Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Cal Aras. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, theglobalcontribution.com. To your friends and colleagues, be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous episodes. This has been a Seven Symphonies production. Join us next time for another edition of the Wisdom of Friends.